Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 19 of Push Dose EMS, uh, your monthly educational podcast brought to you by the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha. Uh, joining me is a cast of familiar faces. So uh, brief introductions going down the list. Uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Podry. Welcome, Dan. Hey, everybody. Uh, Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. And our EMS fellows, uh, Dr. Nika Rendovich and Dr. Brandon Drezich. Welcome, doctors. How you doing? Good morning, Milwaukee County. Welcome, everybody. Uh, we are kicking off the new year with another three-part special for you. So the next couple months, uh, we are going to have a focus on OB, delivery, neonates, all the good things that come along with that. Uh, but before we dive headlong into the topic area, as per usual, uh, I will welcome uh, some updates from the system. So Dan, anything from the system? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I'll try to, as always, be brief here. Uh, as the new year's rolling around here, we're finalizing some of our uh, system guideline and policy updates from the EMS GAPS community. So kudos to them continuing to work hard. There's still quite a bit of work to be done um, as, as that group knows. So uh, lots of meetings. If you're interested in being involved in that, uh, you can reach out to uh, the EMS quality email or Linda Mattress, and she can get you set up on that committee. We do have a pretty uh, robust system participation on that committee, but we always welcome more faces and thoughts. Um, also with the new year, uh, National Registry Renewals comes around as well. Um, so also this year, our education team is working very diligently to get records entered into registry so that the renewal process can be as smooth and as user-friendly as possible. And then lastly, I know I've mentioned uh, with some of the new uh, funding coming towards the EMS system, we're looking at some of the new tools and technology. Uh, one of the efforts with that is going to be a consolidated EPCR platform. Um, we've been in touch with the, the EMS and fire department leadership to talk a, a little bit about this uh, and the implementation plan. But uh, in addition to that, we're looking at uh, forming a data subcommittee of admin review. So if you are interested in participating on how data is collected and utilized uh, to inform efforts, not only through the county, but also through your individual agencies, we are looking for participation from that as well. So please reach out uh, to myself uh, or you can reach out through the EMS quality email as well, and you can uh, we'll get you signed up for that committee. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. Yes, uh, the team is just about done entering what was the completions for National Registry. So uh, that is as of January 24th. So uh, feel free to take a look at what's in there, and you'll be able to see if you're missing any hours. And feel free to go ahead and renew your registry as you're complete. We got a couple months to do that, but I know there are plenty of you out there that like to be on the ball with that sort of thing. So, and then moving on to medical direction, Dr. Weston, anything for the medical direction team? All right. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everyone. So, for our first podcast of 2022, uh, we have a lot of exciting initiatives coming this year. So from our annual guideline and policy updates, which will be coming up soon, uh, several expanded quality initiatives, a number of departments are working to expand their scope of services to better serve their community. Uh, we'll have an increased focus on data-informed care, some exciting improvements to how the patient care record works uh, and strengthen community initiatives as well. So 2022 promises to be a substantial year for our departments uh, and for our system overall. 
From a COVID perspective, we're turning the corner on Omicron, it appears by looking at the data, but cases do remain critically high and our hospitals remain overcrowded. So please continue to be careful out there. Use your mitigation measures, including high quality KN95 or N95 masks for every patient encounter. Uh, we do also have a change to our medical direction team. So Dr. Chin, our assistant medical director for education, will be transitioning away from this EMS role and into a new and exciting role for him as medical director of the Frederick Maine Emergency Department. Dr. Chin's contribution and leadership in improving our education program uh, with novel and creative approaches to continuing education has certainly been substantial and he'll be missed in this role, but we are excited for him in this new role. Uh, Dr. Engel, our medical director for quality, will be filling that education role in the interim. And finally, a farewell to South Milwaukee Fire Chief Knitter. Chief Knitter is an example of, uh, of outstanding service to his community, uh, as well as to our broader system. And his contributions have been substantial, and we wish him the very best in the future. And I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Weston. Great folks moving on to new and exciting uh, roles in their lives. So good luck to all of them. And with that, back on topic, again, like I said, this is step one in a three-part series on obstetrics, and I will turn the microphone over to Dr. Rendovich, Drazic, and Engel. Good morning, good evening, or good night, anyone who's listening to this podcast series now. As Jeff mentioned, this is going to be a three-part series about the pre-hospital management of OBGYN. We're going to start with a lot of foundational stuff this month, stuff that might seem rudimentary at first, like the assessment, the worries. And next month, we're going to start to hit some of the sphincter tightening stuff, which can either be the best runs of your life or some of the worst runs of your life. And later, some of the true and blue OB emergencies and some of the resuscitations attached to them. At some point during this time, if you guys ever have any questions or you have those burning desires, I want you to email those questions to emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov because we're going to ha actually have another Q&A portion in, three, in month three where we can answer a lot of these questions directly. There are no silly questions, so any things you guys have, we're going to try to address them as best as we can. That said, we're going to start with Act 1, and we'll start with the evaluation of the pregnant woman. So a lot of these things might seem pretty rudimentary, pretty basic at first, but there are a few things you want to really add when you're getting that history of a woman who might be or is pregnant. And you might have heard in the hospital that we kind of start our assessment with what's called the G's and P's, gravita and para. That's some fancy language for something really basic here. Gravita refers to the number of times a person has been pregnant. It's good to know how many times they've been pregnant before. And para or parity refers to the number of live births a woman has had. That is the number of pregnancies that resulted in a living child, you know, without any uh, miscarriages or anything else uh, stopping that from becoming a full viable child at the end. So in other words, these are just fancy words and numbers that mean number of pregnancies and number of kids, more or less. The G's and P's can actually be important for a number of reasons. Patients that have had many previous deliveries tend to have labors that progress very quickly. If they're in labor, that might actually be pretty imminent. We have some large amount, when people have some large amounts of children, we call these the grand multiparous, fancy Latin words. And this can be important because that mother and child can be at a high risk of other complications such as postpartum hemorrhage, which is the excessive bleeding and preterm delivery. A lot, again, 
some of this stuff is important as well, because a lot of the patients that have had a large number of pregnancies that might not have made it to a live delivery, such as miscarriages, may be more likely to have similar issues with other pregnancies as well. Another important uh, piece of the history would be gestational age. That is, how old is that pregnancy? Um, we typically consider pregnancy in trimesters, right? Uh, first through uh, the um, 12 week mark, the 13th through 26, and then the 27th uh, week mark until delivery. But if you have to remember one number, one single number that makes a huge difference in the care of the pregnant woman, that magic number is 20, two zero. It's like a venti coffee. 20 is a crucial number. The amount of coffee you get is crucial. This is actually the halfway point of pregnancy. And this part gets kind of weird because once you hit that number of 20, all of a sudden management, and for that matter, how interested an OB doctor is being called to an ER completely changes. Around this time, the 20 week mark, when a fetus is going to be considered viable, meaning this fetus has a chance of surviving delivery outside of the body. The number is pretty low initially, like seven out of 100 um, at 22 weeks, but that chance of survival really tends to start right around that 20 week mark and continues to increase week by week thereafter. When you get these patients, they should really be going to OB-capable facilities. And depending on the risk, in other words, how premature they might be or how unstable that kid looks at birth, should probably go to places that actually have neonatal intensive care units. Another element you want to consider is if the patient has had any prenatal care or lack thereof. You know, not having that prenatal care can put you at a lot of higher risk and presumably at these cases should be considered risky, unstable neonates until proven otherwise. And then finally, in terms of information you want to collect, you really need to spend a little extra time or a different approach to those vital signs, in particular, the blood pressure. You know, we think about blood pressure and especially in the average person, we typically ignore it. A blood pressure of 150 over 80, whatever, 170 over 90, not putting a huge amount of attention to it. But a lot of times this can mean imminent danger in a pregnant patient, especially if they're above 20 weeks. So try to get an accurate blood pressure, pay attention to it, and try to report it to the hospital staff and kind of express some of your concerns about it so it doesn't get lost in the weeds. We'll hit a little bit more about it next month, but primarily it's because of eclampsia and preeclampsia. So those are the basics of things you want to collect that might be maybe slightly atypical. The number of times someone has been pregnant, the number of live healthy births they've had, their gestational age, and mainly if they are above or below that 20 week mark, uh, if they've had prenatal care, and then especially the blood pressure with those vital signs. Now we'll turn the, the uh, turn a little bit and pivot to a little of the issues that we face when managing pa uh, pregnant patients. The first of these, uh, nausea and vomiting. Hyperemesis is a term for something that is fairly common in uh, pregnancy, relatively. Um, and we might ask ourselves, how in the back of our ambulance do we best manage those patients that are actively nauseated, vomiting, and maybe have been for several days? It's worth extra discussion because there has been some controversy in the past over the medication Ondansetron, brand name Zofran. 
Historically, people were worried it was linked to congenital abnormalities like cleft lips and cardiac defects. And, uh, you know, you very well may have a patient that might ask about it if you're trying to work on controlling that nausea and vomiting. But it's okay. You can give Zofran. Recent studies that came out really don't show any strong evidence of actual complications. And the complication of true hyperemesis, when a pregnant woman has that intractable nausea and vomiting, is real malnutrition and a whole lot of discomfort, which is not going to be good for either mom nor baby. Moving on from there, we'll talk about something that's maybe a little bit of a oh heck moment, uh, vaginal spotting, uh, also known as those little bits of vaginal bleeding. This is where knowing that gestational age is very important. Less than 20 weeks might be a spontaneous abortion. It might be what we call an ectopic pregnancy. This could be associated with STDs or pelvic inflammatory diseases. And it may be associated, you know, in the right conditions with an ectopic pregnancy. I say that twice because that's how dangerous an ectopic pregnancy can be. Now, greater than 20 weeks, you got to hold on to your butts about something. You know, it still could be something simple if you see that vaginal spotting after that. You know, towards the end of pregnancy, there are some benign conditions, a little bit of bloody show, some mucus plugging, mild trauma from vaginal penetration. Could be something that uh, is relatively benign and unremarkable. But of course, we're not in the uh, we're not in the market of caring for people and only worrying about the things that. It could be when it's not a complication. We need to think through those things that could be something worse, including abruption. Placental abruption is the separation of the placenta from the wall of the uterus. That is, that placenta, that uh, piece that is uh, delivering all the nutrients from mom to baby um, comes separated. And this is usually accompanied by both that vaginal bleeding, spotting, and an abdominal pain. Also could be a sign of placenta previa, where that placenta, instead of being on the side at the top or some normal place in the uterus, is maybe stuck to the bottom right on top or over that, uh, that cervical area what is um, really meaning that bleeding you might be getting is from the placenta directly. You know, speaking of abdominal pain in a pregnant patient, Abdominal pain in general is one of the most annoying complaints you can ever have because it can feel so nonspecific. When you get these in pregnant patient, just like you should be doing with any abdominal pain patient, make sure you actually palpate the abdomen because getting an idea of where that pain is can give a little bit more information. When we consider abdominal pain in the pregnant patient, I don't want you to forget about the classics. And I say this because I just don't want us to anchor on anything. We're all susceptible to making these mistakes. Besides being pregnant, all the classics still exist. It's very common for pregnant people to get appendicitis, cholecystitis. In other words, being pregnant doesn't stop these other pathologies from occurring. Don't anchor on these things. But that being said, there are a whole lot of other things that can be going on as well. And the first that we want to think about and consider is the one Dr. Renovich already mentioned several times, an ectopic pregnancy. And this is where that fetus is implanted in the wrong spot. Instead of being in the uterus, it might be outside of it somewhere else in the body. 
somewhere else in the abdomen. And this is a diagnosis we all worry about. It is life-threatening. It is highly emergent. Oftentimes, you can help rule this out by asking if the patient has had an ultrasound showing a pregnancy that is in the right place inside the uterus. But remember, um, with the absence of full reassurance, vital signs might initially be normal. And even if the patient has lost a lot of blood, this um, can be something that really leads to a concern for progression to internal hemorrhage and unfortunately death. We call this sometimes relative bradycardia. So you can actually get lower heart rates, uh, which is the opposite of what you'd expect in someone who's actively bleeding. Another form of abdominal pain that we don't consider much is contractions. Knowing the frequency and the intervals help. We've all heard about Braxton Hicks contractions in the past. These are essentially just false contractions that occur less than eight times in an hour or four times every 20 minutes. They're not accompanied usually by any vaginal bleeding or any discharge and are usually just relieved by resting. These are relatively normal and they don't increase the risk of preterm birth. That said, you should never assume any contraction is a Braxton Hicks contraction because it actually requires a pelvic exam. And actual contractions have a high tendency to lead to delivery. This does bring us to our main event here, the delivery. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time in the next episode walking you through the details of how a normal delivery progresses and those delivery complications that can really make you sweat. For now, we're just going to touch on some basics. Like how to recognize labor. More complicated than you'd think. Labor kind of falls into four primary stages. The first stage of labor is painful and increasing and painful and typically has these increasing regular contractions. It's kind of broken into this latent or early phase where the contractions have begun and the cervix is not dilated. Not expecting you guys to check a cervix at any point during these trips, but it's just something to keep in mind. And then it moves into the active phase of labor, which is still in the first stage where that cervix expands and becomes increasingly thin, or you'll ever hear the term effaced. The second stage of labor is when that cervix is fully dilated until the baby is delivered. This can be anywhere between 20 or 50 minutes, sometimes even longer, and associated with big urges to push. Many women during this time will have what they call that rupture of membranes, AKA their water's breaking. It's not a key feature, but do remember if a woman believes her water broke, she should definitely get evaluated regardless. If you're gonna play the game of, is it pee or did the water break? Pick the water break every single time. The third stage is the delivery of the placenta, the often forgotten child. This can take somewhere between 20 minutes and at the time at which, a and at this time, special attention should really be put towards mom because there can be quite a bit of bleeding attached to it. And you should never pull on the umbilical cord to get the placenta out. It should kind of deliver on its own. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about that in detail later. There's a fourth stage too, which is around the time you should be transporting. But keep in mind around here, you can also still get quite a bit of bleeding too. Quite a bit's an understatement though. It can actually be a lot and it's possible that mom can actually die from bleeding that much. Again, we'll, we'll approach that more later. So those are the stages of labor. One of the things you might be asking yourself is how often am I actually going to deliver that? Um, how often am I actually going to have to deliver that baby myself? Now, 
I think the first thing you got to ask yourself here is how do you recognize an imminent delivery? How do you recognize a delivery that is coming so fast you just have to catch? The first clue might be those sustained contractions that are getting closer and closer together. If the contractions are coming every couple minutes, you really have to think about it and give yourself pause because you want to be in a safe space if that baby is coming. The second clue you move on to, and this is key, is that that baby is crowning, which means you might have to think about it, you might have to look, and you have to assess if that baby's head is right there, ready to come out. If you can see the baby's head or the mother feels it's right there, you have to give some serious consideration to delivery prior to transport. This is that concept that we all know pretty well of when to stay and play and when to load and go. And this can be a really difficult question. On one hand, women have been birthing children since the dawn of humans. So in theory, it should be able to be done anywhere. That being said, there are a lot of complications that can arise. And really, in terms of naturally occurring things um, that women do over the course of their lives, it can be potentially dangerous. So we tend to like to do it in a very controlled setting with a specialist, which I'm sure mom prefers as well. But we really have to avert disaster by being prepared for and assuming the worst. A lot of it comes down to risk in the mom's or baby's status. You don't want to be delivering that baby in the midst of trying to get the mother onto the cot or outside where the mother and child are both exposed to the elements and things can go downhill very fast And if you're not ready to set up. You also don't want to be delivering the child if you're walking down the stairs and the patient might be in one of the mega mover tarps. So really, you're going to have to use a lot of your clinical judgment here. If that baby's showing and about to pop out, consider if you have time to make it all the way to the hospital or at least into the ambulance. If not, set up shop and get your equipment ready and get ready to go. So we're going to cut this off here and leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger, picturing yourself right there in that circumstance. Stay tuned for next month, where we walk through a delivery step-by-step, first with a normal delivery, then consider all the things that can go wrong. As always, stay safe out there, and thanks for what you do, and feel free to reach out with any questions or comments. Again, I want you guys, when you can, if you have any questions regarding anything, email out to emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov, and we'll leave it to Dr. Engel to talk about some of the operational managements of transport of the mom and baby. Thank you, Dr. Rendovich and Dr. Dragic. Thank you. Uh, great uh, initial discussion for the management of a pregnant mother. I'm going to be very brief and discuss on a QA point uh, that moves over to the operational portion. So once you've delivered a healthy baby and a, you have a healthy mom, you've done an amazing job. How do you get these people correctly and safely to the hospital? Well, this does kind of depend on the operational issues within your department about what equipment you have and what your department uh, says is operational, operationally uh, okay to do. However, there are some key points that medical direction needs you to follow. First and foremost, both mom and baby have to be secured during transport. All major societies know that it is not safe for mom to hold baby during transport. We know we wouldn't do this in a car. We're probably not, we can't do this in the back of the ambulance. So they both have to be secure. Second, keeping mom and baby together is really important. You have a newborn, um, they require their mother. However, this is if it's possible. If you have a sick mom or a sick baby, it may not be possible to keep them together and you're gonna have to take care of a person separated uh, you know, from their newborn baby. Um, 
This third thing you want to do is you want to make sure that um, you could most likely try and keep these two together and utilizing skin to skin if possible. And there's some really interesting pediatric securing devices out there that allow mom and baby to remain skin to skin, but they're equally and safely secured to the cot. Um, so if that's possible with what you have in your operational devices, you should be using those devices. If you don't have them, talk to your department and see if you can get them. Um, the third thing you can do is you should uh, be utilizing on-scene car seats for babies. We know that our ambulances aren't carrying these, but consider finding these car seats. You know, the parents might have them, a neighbor might have them, a family member might have one to secure that car seat to the cot, the bench, or the jump seat, and then securing mom to either or the other one available uh, securing locations in the back of the ambulance. Um, so essentially, there really is no exact way how you're supposed to secure uh, and safely transport these patients after a delivery in the field, but you should be considering keeping mom and baby together. You should be consider ensuring that they're both safely secured, and you should be using all of your on-scene resources for pediatric securing devices you might have, um, the availability of car seats, new securing devices to keep mom and baby safe, um, but making sure that you're always securing them all down together. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Enigal, and everybody able to join us today. Uh, so anything on this topic or any other educational requests, please feel free to reach out emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov, and we will uh, certainly take a look at it and see what we can do to provide. Uh, again, thanks, everybody. Some great information today, some things, some good takeaway points, and I am certainly curious to see how this topic gestates over the next couple months. So uh, with bad puns aside, uh, thanks, everybody. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next month.